everyone, as David said, my name is Liam, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new to the church, uh, let me uh, welcome you also. Great to see you. Uh, why don't we open up our books, our books, our Bibles to, this is not a lecture hall, this is church. Let's open up to Luke chapter 13. It'd be really helpful if you've got this passage open in front of you. Uh, we're just going to be walking through this section together. Uh, let me uh, lead us in prayer as we come to study it together. Father, we read in the book of Isaiah, you saying, this is the one whom I will esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father, please help us to hear this word humbly. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Why do people not believe in Jesus? What lies at the root of anyone's rejection of his salvation? I think of my friend Sam. Sam's a lot of fun. He's edgy with his opinions, but he's a good friend. Uh, he's very strong-minded and knows what he thinks, and I've had opportunity to share the gospel with him many times. We studied Mark's gospel together at one point until he said, well, that's enough for me to know this isn't for me. What's behind that rejection of Jesus' salvation? Or what about Maggie? Maggie, unlike Sam, is quite religious. She would say she's a believer, but she's not, not according to what the Bible lays out for us as a disciple of Jesus Christ. She really likes the idea that there is a God, but he's got to be very, a very Maggie-friendly kind of God genie-like, really. When, there, whenever she needs her, like when she's in trouble or when she dies, but back in his bottle the rest of the time. Now, I've tried showing her from the Bible what a disciple looks like, chapter and verse, showing her the sentences, and she responds with a very dismissive, hmm, like she's interested, but nothing changes. It's a silent rejection. But what lies behind that? Think about your own friends, family members, loved ones that you know. What, what is it that makes someone not believe in Jesus? I mean, we might say, well, a person may claim to reject Jesus on intellectual or ethical or even religious grounds. But ultimately, it's never just that. You know, what lies behind the rejection of Jesus is the heart-deep issue of pride. Pride. An unwillingness to give up self-rule and self-centeredness. Because self-rule and self-centeredness make it extremely difficult to enter salvation through Jesus Christ, who, as we saw last week in the passage before this one, is himself the narrow door. Now, how does God feel about that? How should we feel about that? What, just, what does Jesus do about this pride and this prideful rejection of himself and the refusal to enter this narrow door? What should we do about that? Well, uh, the answer is found in, the, uh, in this passage that we're looking at tonight. If you did miss last week, let me just give you a quick catch-up. We began what is a new section in Luke's gospel running from chapter 13, verse 20, which contains a little travel log, travel narrative. And then a question, which then gives you the, the, the subject topic for the whole section. It's salvation. 
And this little section runs all the way through until chapter 17, verse 10, when you get the next little travelogue thing on his way to Jerusalem. This happens. But last week we saw Jesus urging people to enter his salvation through him. He said it wasn't going to be easy. That's why people needed to strive and to fight, to struggle, if you like, to enter. They should do it with urgency, of course, for there is a day coming when that door to salvation will be shut. But in this passage, Jesus shows us why people find it hard to enter. And here, in both the example of Herod and in the Pharisees, we see pride. And the pride-driven rejection of Jesus is lamentable to him. But it's also exposed by him. It breaks his heart, but he won't hide that fact. He wants us to see it so that we can repent of it because it's sin. Well, let's look at this passage together in two chunks. And number one is this. Proud people reject Jesus as king. That's chapter 13, verse 31 to 35. Look with me at verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now that's Herod's message for Jesus. Your arrival and I want you dead. Now who is this guy, Herod? It's not Herod the Great that you read about in the Christmas story. Uh, that's his dad. This is Herod Antipas. Uh, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided up between his four children, meaning that this Herod here, this Antipas, uh, he's a tetrarch, not even a, he's not a king. And he's, he thinks he's king of the Jews, though. That's the way that um, Rome puffs him up. Oh, you're the right king of the Jews. But he's not even ethnically Jewish. Spiritually, we know he does not keep God's law. Uh, we know that from earlier in the gospel in his handling of John the Baptist. Uh, positionally, he's a tetrarch, as I've just said. He's not even a king. And geographically, he's not in Jerusalem. He's in Galilee in the north. Which, all, all of which is just a little bit of detail that tells us he's an absolute pretender to the title of king of the Jews and puffed up with a sense of his own self-importance. But because he thinks he's king, he fires a warning shot across Jesus' bow. Go away. Now, Jesus is a rival. Someone who will challenge Herod's way of life. Someone who has the potential to make him look bad and threaten change that Herod himself does not want. And in the past, when that certain prophet called John the Baptizer did that, John lost his head. But what does Jesus say in response to Herod and this warning shot across the bows? Well, here's Jesus' message for Herod in verse 32. I'm the king. And I won't be stopped. Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day, I will reach my goal. Now, you might ask, hang on a minute, where does it say in there, where does Jesus say in there that I'm the king? Well, it's in the reference to the exorcisms and the healings. You see, according to the Old Testament, these are identifying marks of the Messiah, God's Old Testament promised anointed king. Luke's already laid these qualifications, these kind of tick box criteria out for us, the identifying markers out for us in two places already. Luke chapter 4, 18 to 21, and Luke chapter 7, 21 to 23. In Luke 4, he's, Jesus says the Spirit of the Lord is on him. This is at Nazareth, of course, 
to do these things. In other words, proving that the Messiah is among them, okay? And then in Luke chapter 7, when John the baptizer sends his disciples to say, are you the one we've been looking for, or is someone else coming? Jesus replies with, well, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead rise. You know, if there was such a thing as a Messiah spotter with a clipboard and some tick boxes in the crowd on that occasion, they'd be like, tick, 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 tick. That's him. That's how it would have gone down. But verse 32 in our passage is an abbreviated version of those two texts. So when you see these things, the kingdom of God is among you. Exorcisms, healings. He's the king. Now you might ask, well, where does it say he won't be stopped? Well, it says so in verse 32b and verse 33. You see, Jesus here very, com very humbly communicates his sovereign authority. He just says, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing until I, verse 32, reach my goal. Uh, those words, in fact, in the original Greek simply read, on the third day, finished. Third day, by the way, isn't a reference to his resurrection. It's really a Jewish expression of completion to accompany the word for finished. He won't be stopped, this Jesus, not by Herod's threat. In fact, not by anything else at all. He is going to finish his work. And what is his work? Verse 33, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. There it is. He's destined to die in Jerusalem. He's destined to die on a cross. The cross will be his kingly throne, not something comfy and cushioned with purple and stuff that makes him look important, but a ragged cross, an instrument of punishment. Herod himself will play his part in that death later, but only in accordance with God's sovereign plan. For now, Herod's just come onto the scene just that little bit too early. Now, if you're here tonight and you would not say that you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins or see any need to, I believe this passage helps people like you see what I saw once before I became a Christian, that the rejection of Jesus by people like us and by my friend Sam, for example, explains what's going on. For Sam and for me before I became a Christian, oh, Sam doesn't make any personal threat to Jesus. He still wishes that Jesus was dead. He rejects him because Jesus is a challenge to Sam's own self-rule. I want to live the way I want to live. That's the way I used to think before I became a Christian. To say, stay away, I want nothing to do with you, is to want him dead. But Sam is no more the captain of his own soul than Herod was truly the king of the Jews. One day Herod would see this and tremble. And so will Sam. And very honestly, the Bible says, so will you. I only hope it will happen while the door to salvation is still open and not shut so that you can respond the way that people should respond when they see Jesus as king and go tick, tick, tick. Yeah, he's the one. With faith, belief in his words, taking what he says is true, trusting in his death in particular, his death on that cross, which isn't just a punishment from the Romans, but him laying his life down for us and for our sins. And rising again three days later to prove that that sacrifice was accepted by the Lord God. And that we who believe in him 
are not daft people for believing, but truly recipients of an eternal life that we didn't deserve. If all of that just sounds new to you, if I was, it wasn't until I was 19 years old that somebody explained it to me that simply. It should not take that long. But if that sounds so new to you, I'd love to chat to you afterwards. Even if you don't want to talk, there are little Mark's Gospels that explain what I've just mentioned just now in these past few moments that are on the little things over there, holders. Feel free to come and grab one of those. And what Jesus says next actually encourages you to do just that, not take a thing, but practice repentance. Because this is Jesus' message for those who reject him. Verses 34 and 35, your rejection breaks my heart. Look with me, verse 30, uh, is it 34? Sorry, let me check. 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You see here, Jesus finds the rejection of him lamentable. It's a sorrowful thing. Jerusalem is his city. It's God's city. The city of the Messiah, the city of God's king, the city of God's people, the place where God had been said to dwell in his temple. But here this city is described in murderous terms. The people that settled there ultimately defied his word and rebelled against God's loving rule many times over, over many, many centuries. In what ways? Well, Jesus actually specifically mentions stoning in this passage. Did you see that? Stoning was a punishment reserved for people who blasphemed, who said false things about God. But this city is renowned for dispensing that very judgment on those who came from God with a very real and authentic and gracious message from him. Now, you might expect Jesus the Son of God, who is the one that's ultimately rejected by these people to go into full-on Hulk mode, flip some tables, flip his lid, and just start dispensing some kind of hellfire judgment. But that's not what he does. While Jesus finds their rejection of him and his sent ones, the prophets, the messengers, lamentable, he speaks about this city and its lost people with great compassion. Did you see that? You see his compassion not just for the lost and the clueless, but for the rebellious, the proud conspirers against his loving rule because they wanted to maintain some kind of life for themselves. It's amazing, actually. See the heart behind this illustration of the mother hen. That all God wanted to do was gather his people the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings for protection, out of affection. But, Jesus says, you, they were not willing. They are still unwilling on this day that Jesus speaks, so much so that soon they will crucify the Son of God that was sent to save them. Which is why their house, which is just a way of referring to their city and the establishment, the the, the polity of it and the sacrificial system that's included in it was going to be made desolate. That's God's just and right judgment. Not a hot-headed judgment, but a settled disposition to deal with rebellion. 
But even this judgment declared by Christ is issued not with some kind of bad guy nastiness or the smugness of a righteous man, but with a heart that is broken. It's what we see all the way through the rest of Luke's gospel, and I want you to pay attention for it. He will walk to that cross praying forgiveness on the ones who spit at him, strike him, pull out his beard, and shout, crucify. Even when he's dying to save those who one day will be gathered when they see him as the true true king. And they will. Jesus actually promises that in verse 35. Jesus will be vindicated as God's true king in the sight of all. That's what it means when he says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, people with some Bible knowledge might say, blessed is he, and think, well, that's Palm Sunday. That's what the people did as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. But it's more than that. The blessed is he quote here is actually from Psalm 118, which is the song of the vindicated king. In that Psalm, the king was once rejected by his people. But he enters into the city as a conquering ruler, and the people go, ah, yeah, he is the true king. And as he enters, even he, as the king, recalls the people's rejection. But in the end, the people all acknowledge that the once rejected king has been vindicated by God. And one day in fulfillment of that psalm, Jesus, the once rejected king, will return again and all not just to Jerusalem but to this world will shout out and call him blessed even those who have rejected him in this life while the door to salvation has been open now again if you're here tonight and you would not say I believe the resurrection of the dead of course I do the compassion of Christ for those who reject him in preference for self-rule for doing what we want to do over and against what God wants us to do is yet another reason for you to behold the beauty of Christ. There is no one like him. Who do we know that acts towards us with such out-of-this-world love when we have rejected them and been obnoxious towards them? Not a single person, I guarantee it. But he does. That such is his kindness, such is his heart. It's inviting, friends. He's a far better king over your heart than you are. And even though a pride-driven rejection of him is lamentable to him, pride should be confessed. And you should humbly come in sorrow over sin, knowing that you will be received welcomed by him under the promise of his welcoming grace and forgiveness. There is no one like him. No one with a heart like him. And love like that ought to be reciprocated. I invite you to. And brothers and sisters, for those of us who do believe, it is wonderful for us afresh to realize that it is compassion that led Christ to not only die for us, but send his spirit to open our eyes. I mean, if we can right now say with our whole heart, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you truly are blessed. You ought to give thanks. You did not come up with that on your own. You didn't study enough of your Bible in order to draw that conclusion. The Lord in his kindness is 
given you eyes to behold his son for in all his beauty and to respond to him with the right love that he is due. So praise him for that. And of course, while we wait for this final return of our Lord and King, let's follow the example of the rejected king that we follow and be compassionate to those who reject Christ. Because it still happens today. How should I respond to my friend Sam? Uh, I think I've learned enough about this gospel, this Jesus, to know I know enough not to want to believe it. <sighs> Breaks your heart, doesn't it? When someone you... When someone you love so dearly refuses the gift of life in preference for death. Do we go all wage monster? Do we go quiet, iceberg on them, dismissive? My anger will be quiet and you will never see me ever again. You know, we don't. We are those who with hearts modeled and shaped on our saviors, we go again. We love the way he has. We brush off insults if they come. We step through in faith the disappointments and hurdles we first experienced. And until that trumpet call comes, we keep talking. We keep trying. We never stop. Pause for a second and try and just think of two names where you might have stopped trying. Doesn't take long for me. There's your homework. It's my homework. There are many Sams. And this, through us, sharing this good news, because they're not in here, they're all out there. You're we're all coming into contact with them in different places. This is how God exposes pride in people like Sam through broken-hearted people like us going out with the gospel. Now, indeed, this is what Jesus does with the religious leaders and Pharisees too in the second section we're looking at tonight because it's not just Herod or people like Sam that need to see their pride, but the Pharisees and religious rulers and people like Maggie too. And this is point two, pride people will be exposed by Jesus the King. This is 14, 1 to 14. Look at verses 1 to 6. First of all, the pride that Jesus exposes in sinful hearts. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat, verse 1, in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Verse 2, there in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. Now, the Pharisees, don't miss this, use a sick man to trap Jesus, that sick. But the Pharisees are the religious rulers of Israel, if you don't know who they are. But these are the ones who are rejecting Jesus because they actually think he is a lawbreaker, therefore he's a big X on the clipboard tick box. But Jesus has proven to be quite slippery in the past as they've sought to trap him or question him in ways that can take the legs away from him or force him to go away. So they decide to set a very juicy bait on a very juicy day. The man in front of him is all likelihood terminally ill. Other translations say he's suffering from something called dropsy, which doesn't mean you've got butterfingers. It means you've got oedema, fluid all over your body because your, your organs aren't working properly. So don't miss what's going on here. The Pharisees are thinking, 
let's put this guy in front to bait Jesus, see if he'll heal him on a day when the Lord says, do no work, because they see a healing as doing some work. If Jesus is going to heal this guy and prove he's not the Messiah, look how ridiculous that sounds. Set a trap, he'll heal the guy and prove he's not the king. That's absolutely nuts. And they think it's a perfect trap, but look what happens. Jesus heals the sick man and exposes everyone's pride. Everyone in that place at that meal is leveled in their pride. Verse 3, is it lawful to heal on their Sabbath or not, he asks. This is the first of two simple questions he asks. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? What are they saying? Look at the text. The answer's in the text. Nothing. Silence. No answer. If they say no, they just look like heartless men. But if they say yes, it is lawful, then they just ruin their own trap. But it was lawful because God made provision in the law for breaking the Sabbath on compassionate grounds. That's why Jesus, even in this passage here, almost in passing, took hold of the man, touched him, which they would not have done, healed him, and sent him away. It's just so quick. It's an absolute miracle, but it's like, oh, heal, boom, excuse me, go away and enjoy yourself. But Jesus is finished with him, but not with the Pharisees, and that's the focus of the text, because in verse 5, Jesus then turns around and asks them a second question, because he's not done with them. If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? What do they say? The answer's in the text. Nothing. No answer. Silence. But the answer is obvious. Of course they would. I mean, can you imagine them sitting at their kitchen table reading the daily parchment, hearing some gut-wrenching scream, and then another, only to have Mrs. Pharisee run in screeching, help! We Abraham's fallen down a well. Can you imagine Mr. Pharisee in that moment saying, I'm sorry, dear, but it's the Sabbath. If he's still there in 18 hours, I'll go and pull him out. Now, if you don't mind, I'll just get back to my parchment. I'm not going to say that. And Jesus knows they wouldn't. Wells are deep and sheer-sided. No one is getting out on their own. Unless you can tread water for 24 hours, you're going to die. And even if it was an ox that fell down the well, it would threaten the welfare of your family or the water supply that you lived by. They would still do it of a lesser being they would still do it. They know they would. So what's Jesus doing? He's exposing their pride, their hypocrisy. These are meant to be Israel's religious leaders. They're meant to be humble themselves in front of the king that they've been waiting for. But in order to maintain their own proud sense of self-importance and status, they reject him by trying to trap him. Even their own method betrays their heartless pride. They see the sick man as bait, someone to draw from his sick bed to trap Jesus, but Jesus sees a son who needs saving straight away. The same way he sees this world as screaming sons perishing in the dark at the bottom of a well, unable to save themselves. But Jesus barely leaves them for a second to expose their hypocrisy when he goes right after their pride, verses 7 to 14, where he said, talks about, we find the attitude that Jesus praises in humble hearts. Now, this is weird. Because we go from this healing and this exposing of their hypocrisy to, what's Jesus doing now? Is he giving, is, he's got a little pamphlet that he's brought out and starting to give us wedding etiquette. 
It sounds utterly bizarre until you realize that he's humbling them. It's all part of the same text, all part of the same lesson. Now, verse 1 told us that Jesus was being carefully watched, but here in verse 7, we see that Jesus was watching the Pharisees. When he, Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Oddly, about seating arrangements, verses 8 to 11, we find Jesus offering some friendly advice to proud guests, not to save embarrassment, but to encourage humility. And of course, seating arrangements back then in Jewish culture were a real reflection of social status. And there are a bunch of Pharisees in this room, the words in the plural in the text, and religious leaders, and sure, some important people. Maybe when it came to sit down for the meal, the people were scrambling for seats. Like, well, forget about this guy. Let's just, let's just sit down and eat now. But maybe when they sat down for the meal, the people were scrambling like some frenzied game of musical chairs, people vying for honored seats. And Jesus says to them in order to point out their pride, don't do that. Much better, his overall lesson is much better to be humble and sit in a lowly place so that you are invited up, exalted rather than to sit in an exalted place and be humbled, be demoted, right? That's his key advice. And we understand exactly what that means. I mean, seating arrangements at our own weddings are also based around status, not social status as such, but at the top table at least, relations to the bride and the groom. Closest to the bride and groom are the parents of each of the wedding party and uh, of each and the wedding party, but if you, would, if you would like to do another little bit of homework and there's a wedding coming up, then here's a little experiment for you. Next time you, the next wedding you're at, go and sit in the seat reserved for the mother of the bride. Let's see how long you last. Start a timer when you sit down and let's see how you get on. And film it. So we can all see what happens. Because you won't last 10 minutes. We understand. It's an absolutely simple principle. We understand what's going on. Ten, you won't last 10 minutes exalting yourself to a position where you don't belong. That's why someone will come along and say, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to ask you to move. But they're not really sorry. They're like, move, you plonker. You're in the wrong seat, is really what they mean. But the key lesson for us in verse 11 is this. For all who exalt themselves, in other words, who lift themselves up, will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you really want to be honored, seek to be the least, but this is no social etiquette for dummies. This is the kind of humility that you need in order to enter the narrow door, to enter into God's salvation through faith in Christ. This is what is key to the Luke 9 Denial of self, taking up in cross and following Jesus that's necessary. The necessary response to seeing him as the true king. It's the heart, attitude, and posture common to those who enter Christ's salvation through the narrow door. It's people who go, oh my word, I'm a sinner. I thought I was something, but I realized in the light of the righteousness of Jesus and who I am in respect to him. I'm an absolute nobody. I'm absolutely zero 
There is nothing in my life to commend myself in him. Even all my good deeds are stained with filth and sin. That's why humility is the necessary response. Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Plead the kindness that only God enjoys to give. Plead on behalf of Christ to have that wrath that's deserved for us averted, turned away. Knowing that it will be because it was already spent on Jesus. So you see, this isn't really a message about wedding etiquette and how to find a seat at a banquet. It's about facing up to pride and recognizing that everybody who wants to exalt themselves through some self-centered, self-rule, they're going to be humbled. And it won't be by the host or the MC. It will be by the Lord himself when he returns. And the experience of those who see that and experience it for themselves will be just like those in the chapter we, uh, the passage we looked at last week, who are like, hey, let me in. What? Wait a minute. Why am I outside? We ate and drank with you. We, we've got part in this. It's when, if in pride you exalt yourself, you will hear him say, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, you evildoer. So verses 12 to 14, Jesus finally turns to the host, not to encourage charity, but to encourage humility. Drawing out the very same thing, pointing to the pride first. When you throw a party, how are you throwing a party? Who are you doing it for? Long story short, you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it so that you'll get invited to somebody else's house and you'll be repaid in kind, but really in your heart, you're hoping that you're going to be repaid with more. Oh, you served up roast chicken. You're really hoping for some venison when you get invited to the other person's place, aren't you? That's what's going on. You do it for social standing, for kudos. You do it so you'll be repaid either by some kind of honorable return invitation or recognition and reputation. Instead, Jesus says, put on the best spread you possibly can. You want to see if you're ready for the kingdom of God. Put on the best spread you possibly can and invite the lowest who cannot repay you. Because then you'll show that you're definitely not doing it for yourself and enjoy you're truly doing it for the Lord and in his name. That was timely for them. These religious leaders prized and preferred the reward of men in this life to the reward of God in the next, which he's talking about in the, the, the resurrection of the righteous. That's the end, the new heaven and new earth. But pride like that makes it impossible to enter through the narrow door. So this passage draws it out for us again, friend, again, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, this is, this is a passage that particularly applies to you and helps us understand, brothers and sisters, of how we can speak to those who struggle in this way. Pride is common to us all. The question is, can you see yours? I don't know if it's in vying for position in society, jockeying for a good name in people's sight, seeing it in the way you relate to people. Do you use other people to make you look better or at least hope that it does? Do you use people as platforms for boasting and talk about yourself all the time? In what ways are you exalting yourself? Ask some of your friends. Tell them to be honest with you. Ask them a second time and insist because it's hard to talk about these things. 
God doesn't find it hard. He lays it out for us plain and simple. James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And where pride convinces us we can still live however we want, and God will still accept us, that's Maggie's view, but it's not true. She says, I'm a good person. I don't steal. I give to charity. I recycle. Surely God will let me in. But that's the kind of thing that people say when they're locked out of God's kingdom. She needs to see herself not as a good person, but as a child in a well, screaming. But she doesn't. And that breaks my heart. But only those who humble themselves to enter the narrow door will be exalted by God. To those of us, brothers and sisters, who have entered in, we must help people the way that Jesus helped these people to find and to root out pride. Because in this fight to understand salvation and see Jesus Christ for who he truly is, pride is everyone's greatest enemy, humility their greatest friend. So let's model it. And in doing so, commends the gospel that we share with our mouths. As South African theologian Andrew Murray once said, if humility is the first all-including grace of the life of Jesus, if humility especially is the secret of his atonement, then the health and strength of our spiritual life will depend entirely upon us putting this grace first to and making humility the chief thing we admire in him, the chief thing we ask of him, and the one thing for which we sacrifice all else. The pride-driven rejection of Jesus the King is lamentable to him and exposed by him. That's why this passage helps us to help people see that self-centeredness and self-rule make it difficult to enter Christ's salvation. Only the humble will be exalted. Amen. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads just in the quietness of these seconds. Choose to pray in the way in which the Lord leads you to respond. And then we'll sing.